good afternoon, good afternoon to you. I'm Dr. James Smith, Jr. And welcome to another edition of the Dr. James Show. I'm excited, I'm excited, I'm psyched because I know where we're going today. Another action-packed, informational, and perhaps transformational show. I'm looking forward to it. But before we dive in, can't take a flight without my co-pilot, Shannon Peck. Good afternoon, Shan. Hi. What's up? <laughs> TGIT. That's right. That that's Tuesday. Right. So excited. You doing well? You doing well? Always. Tuesday's my Friday. That's right. That's right. TGIT. Yes. So you excited for another show? Um, yes. I always love your guests, Dr. James, but you know, in this current day and age, uh, I, I think I'm loud and proud to say, you know what? We're going to have a powerful woman on the show today. And <laughs> We have a know, powerful woman every time we do this show. <laughs> always, That's always with the powerful women. I know, I, I think it might be a little difficult to contain our guests in, in, <laughs> in this little virtual world that we're in, but we're going to do our best. But Dr. James, I'd like to encourage our listeners and our viewers today to not be shy. Today is really a special day. It is current. It is real. It is true. Not to say that that isn't the truth every week, but we are just, this is a hot topic. I'm not, I don't even know if I'm actually able to touch my keyboard, but make sure folks go to your chat room, make sure you ask these questions right in your comments. And we're going to do our best within the hour to get them all in because it's going to be informationally packed and you're going to learn a lot today, Dr. James. Let's do it. Buckle up, buckle up. Let's meet our, our guest. Her name is Tamara Swartz. I call her Tammy. Tammy's a professor. She's a researcher. She's a cybersecurity expert. She's a consultant, 20-year Air Force retired lieutenant colonel. What you're seeing right now, pictures of Tammy in uniform. Tammy, during her graduation, receiving her doctorate. Tammy Schwartz, come on out. Tam, how are you? How are you? Hi, thanks for having me. It's so good to be here with you, James and Shannon. Absolutely. Good to see you. You look all chipper and fired up as always. <laughs> well, thank you. Are you ready I, to? I, I put on the on the, the, the professional above the waist clothing just for you today <laughs> and your audience. <laughs> thank so you it's for good doing to have that. a reason to get dressed up. <laughs> thank you for doing that. Excited to have you. Excited for what you're going to share with the group. But I know someone's wondering out there, how did we meet? How did, how did we meet? meet? Uh, we were both pursuing our doctorate degree at Temple University. And in our class, they put us into groups. And Tammy and I just happened to be in the same group. So we worked very closely together for the time we were there. And at one point, we did a special project. We did. Show you a picture. Show you a picture of that, what we did during well, that special. Well, before we show the picture, let's yeah. explain why we look the way we look in the picture. It's the way we look all, of, all the time. Well, uh, <laughs> well you're, you had a little more hair than normal in these pictures that we're going to share. But <laughs> no, go for it. Go for it. Um, so, so as for our, for our listeners, one of the assignments that we received was we were supposed to uh, teach a chapter on qualitative research in our class. And James and I get this chapter and the chapter was from a textbook written in the seventies. And you remember, and, and the two of us looked at it and we were, and, and to give you an idea of how, and, and this ties into today's conversation because it's all about narrative. Um, in this textbook, it talked about studying black men to see how they behaved in professional settings. Like, you were an object worthy of study as a black man to see if you behaved the same way in business as white men did. <laughs> and, and then you observed, which I also observed, that they didn't even bother to study women because why would we study women in a professional environment? Because this was a narrative from the 1970s. And so this, this is what prompted us to try and, when we tried to explain to the professor that we found this chapter really antiquated and quite frankly alienating. And so now you can share the picture that explains how we got our point across. 
So since the chapter was, the book was in the 70s, we decided to go back to the 70s, as well as sharing our information via around the family feud. Yes. See me with the little bit of Afro, leather pants. <laughs> me in the high. mini dress and go-go boots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that well. I remember that well. Okay. <laughs> well, Tammy, I, I mentioned a number of passions that you have. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you currently do, where okay. do you teach, and what, what you do teach. Okay, so, so I'm a cybersecurity professor at the York College of Pennsylvania, and my big project that I'm passionate about right, you know, this in this instant, there's, there's a number of them. I'm working on a project in artificial intelligence related to COVID-19 and how can we ethically leverage AI to manage public health, but also respect human rights. That's one project I'm excited about. Um, the other project that I'm really excited about and having so much fun with my students right now is I'm teaching a class in information warfare. So I conceived of this class. Talk, talk a little bit about that and yeah. what is information warfare? So, so that's what we're gonna be talking about all day, all, all hour. Mm -hmm. um, but this, the idea of this class occurred to me two years ago. Um, and what we mean when we talk about information warfare is the manipulation of the information ecosystem in order to influence people's behavior. Wielding, we, we hear all the time, information is power. What I would tell you is that information is the most powerful thing in the world because with information, you can get money. With information, you can get political power. With information, you can win business. And so information becomes the ability to control the information ecosystem is an extraordinarily powerful tool. And what's going on and what I'm learning as, it, so, so I'm, here I am, I'm teaching this class, right? What's the first thing you do? You're a college professor, you go look to see what textbooks are out there. There's no textbook. Wow. Wow. So I am inventing the class. I am figuring out what needs to be in the class and, and I'm, and I told my student this, I'm like, we're trailblazers. And this is, this is their freshmen. And they're like, wow, what do you mean that? What does that mean? I said, no one's ever taught this before. We're not learning this in college. You are one of the first classes that is like this in the country. And I said, so that's why your course looks so different. Right. And, and so I've been pulling information from all over the, and, and so I had to kind of mind map out how I wanted to even take on the space. Tim, how does one go into war in cyberspace? What, does, uh, what do they do? I mean, can you take us behind the curtain? Yeah, so um, I think I sent you a picture of when we were inventing Cyber Command. Yeah, let's, let, let's show that. Take you back to your military days. Because yeah. I've been in this space for 14 years and this is a picture from the beginning. Sure, all right. And. Uh, Tell us what's going, what's going on here. So it, it looks like we're playing a board game. <laughs> yes. And one of the techniques that my team and I began to use on a routine basis, and now I use it with my students, is we call it, you'll hear the term gamification of the classroom. Well, mm -hmm. we used gamification techniques from the beginning because when you're going into a space that you've never been. Right you have to unpack your head. Ooh. How do you unpack your head so that you, you know what it is, wrap your head around all of these things that are, there's so much complexity. Now, Tam, in this picture, are you teaching? Are you illustrating? You seem to have everyone's attention. What we're doing in this picture is we are trying to, <laughs> we're trying to unpack one another's heads. Okay. And so I am both teaching and learning I am sharing ideas and, and asking for explanations. There's a whole, and, and what we've got, we've got little, um, you may be able to see, I think we've got some little toy airplanes and some little toy tanks and we've got sticky notes and we've got, um, there's some tinker toys in the background, I think somewhere. And we've got, and it's all laid out on a whiteboard and we're drawing with magic markers and we've got a 
camera that shoots down on the table and projects it up onto the wall for other people to see what we're doing. And what, what, was, the, what was the purpose here? So what we were doing here was we were trying to think about what is, what is cyberspace and how do you go to war there? And what we finally concluded is there's actually three pieces to you know, what is the mission of Cyber Command is what we were kind of wrestling with. What, and, what is the mission of Cyber Command? Okay. Yeah. And so, and there's three pieces to this war domain. One is that it is a place virtual, but it is a, it is a real domain where people experience a rivalry for power. Their the game theory applies. We are jockeying for power, manipulating what's going on in the environment in order to become dominant of that part of the battle space. That's one piece. Uh, yeah. Another piece is that these devices are part of logistics support for the physical world. Mm -hmm. So what goes on in here is related to decision support. It's related to communication. It's related to automation of processes. Mm -hmm. And when these, when the tools fail to work, what we're trying to achieve in the physical domain can be impacted. So that's a second piece. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece is how do we wield this environment, wield these tools as a weapon? So how do we, so for example, you can go drop a bomb on an electric power station to turn off the lights, or you can send in a computer virus and achieve the same effect. Wow. And so we talk about using it as a non-kinetic weapon. So these are the three things that we were- Powerful. So this weird picture where it looks like we're playing a board game, those were the concepts that came out of this kind of a conversation. So you've been in this space for a long time. About 14 years. And how does this apply to what you do now with the students, with your research, perhaps even with your, your dissertation research? Yeah, so when, when I was getting my dissertation, what I understood was that we've mischaracterized cybersecurity as a technical problem. A technical problem has a technical solution. You come up with it, you fix it, you're done. Mm -hmm. But a strategic problem, a, a competitive advantage problem Part of the answer is technical, but most of it is human and strategic. Nice. And so my whole, dis it took me a while to even find a business school that would let me come study cybersecurity as my, as my dissertation. And you but when I finally- find, Did you have a hard time finding articles for your, your research considering this was pretty good? <laughs> so, so, so yes, from a, from a pure logistics perspective, Dave, my, my, my uh, mentor, David Schaff, who was one of our professors, he and I, um, Dave, uh, David would say, well, what about this, Tammy? And I go, no, 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 that's not what I mean. And he'd send me something else and he'd go, okay, I go, well, I mean a little of this, but I also mean, that. so I wound up delving into something like 40 different academic theories. <laughs> I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers and so I looked at everything from why people buy lottery tickets, because that has to do with risk-seeking behavior, mm -hmm. to how people make decisions, to how, we, how knowledge grows. And I came to this conclusion that cyberspace is much more, a lot of people, you ask them what cyberspace is, they say, oh, it's the internet. It's not. It's cyberspace for me is a three-dimensional construct. Okay. One piece of that construct is these physical systems, the networks, the computers, the devices in front of us. One piece of that system is the information that is delivered through those tools. So software, data, news stories. I, think about a book. When Amazon invented the Kindle, a book stopped being a three-dimensional object with pages and became the content within that physical manifestation. So that's the second piece is the information. And then the third piece is this. It's this concept, um, it, if, you've, if you're a person of, of faith, you may have run across a, a guy called Father Pierre Teilhard, wrote a book, The Phenomenon of Man, and he coined the term newosphere. 
And the concept of noosphere is that it is a fifth dimension. So if you think about three dimensions, sure. time being four, there's some sort of intellectual place that you and I and all of our listeners are trying to join together in right now. And that's why communication exists. Ooh, ooh. So that we can all get there and share that space. <laughs> well, let's share space with Shannon right now. Shannon, come on out. What's going on in the chat room? Already, this is awesome. Wow, we all need to understand what teaching new things really means. Very interesting. Um, for me personally, I'm I'm a little intimidated because you know your formal former lieutenant colonel, the only colonel I've ever met, works at KFC. But I'm just saying. Um, the other I thing, at McDonald's, does that make it less threatening? <laughs> thing, Dr. James, is I don't know about you, but I would never want to, if, if you had young sons, I would never want to play against you in a video game because she's got skills. But we do have a question in the chat room, which, which is, what is your response to how sources successfully compromise or obtain information from our government or major companies or even our financial institutions? How is it that information breached at places like these? Like, who would think we could ward off these attacks like this. So how do we, how does it even happen? Like what, what? So, so my, that conversation, that's a whole different conversation, but I'll give you a piece of it because um, it has to, we, I just, re, we just, actually we have a podcast on right now. Um, I, I do a podcast called IQ for you. And, um, and the episode that's on right now is about hackers and their continuous learning behaviors. Mm. One of the problems is because we approach cyber threat as a static concept, our hackers are continuous learners. So if you think about what continuous learning behavior is, it's constant engineering. Oh, let's try this. Okay, well that no longer works. Let's try this new way. Let's try this. Oh, hey, look, I learned this really cool thing. Let me tell you about it. And so that's what goes on in the hacker communities. We on our side, we say, okay, I went to cybersecurity training. I got CISSP certified and I have been to RSA and I know everything on my checklist. And so we're cyber secure. Hmm. Well, can you see the mismatch? I know everything I've been to training. I'm constantly learning and experimenting and trying new things. That's why it happens. Hmm. We get and too comfortable. Well, and, and it, continuous learning behavior is hard. And it's particularly hard in this dimension because the technology changes really fast, not just because of the, the intellectual behavior, but because of something we call Moore's law, which is this, you know, every technology doubles the number of circuits on a circuit board every 12 to 18 months, and then the price comes down. And so you have four times the amount of computing power about every year. And so the tools get better and more effective and the people are constantly teaching themselves, but on our side, we're so immersed in day-to-day -day operations that we don't remember to continuously learn. Mm. And so that's how that happens. And, and there's so much to know, you can't know everything. And so it's easy to miss things because you know we have to block five zillion holes, they have to exploit one. Mm. Not fair. Thank you. Isometric. <laughs> Dan, before we go further, because I have a ton of questions, can you tell us a little bit about your past? What, what led you to the military? What led you in some of the places you traveled to while you were there? <laughs> I've had kind of a bizarre career. Um, I, well, I wound up in the military because my dad went to West Point and I didn't want to cut my hair. And so he kind of, he wanted me to go to West Point. I'm like, no, I'm not crawling in the mud and cutting my hair. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but you really get an opportunity for leadership at a very early age. So I really wish you would at least consider ROTC. Uh, so I did ROTC. I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, got an undergraduate in engineering, um, graduated. When it, we, it graduated into a massive recession and was thankful that I had a job in the Air Force. And I was a project manager. And if anyone out here, any of your listeners are project managers, if you've ever been a project manager, you know that every job in the world is project management. So you become a project manager and they just move you from one place to another and you just, you just get a broad exposure to things. Um, I happen to be a systems thinker. And so 
I call myself a spaghetti. What I say is spaghetti brain. <laughs> Everything connects for me. <laughs> and I don't know why. I just know it does. I'm a spaghetti brain. And so I see connections to what I'm doing in my church leadership role, to what I'm doing in my classroom, to what I did in, in, uh, in the Middle East back when I was deployed. And it all comes, it all connects. And it all connects for me through this information warfare, this information construct and how we compete in the information domain. And so a big piece of your show has been about how do we begin to take on these institutions? How do we begin to take on systemic marginalization of people? And when you expand cybersecurity out into this concept of information warfare and beyond just these devices that we're standing in front of and get really into here, this is the heart of where marginalization has happened. And because of these tools, it's becoming easier and more chaotic. And as a society, because of these tools, we, are, we have become untethered from a shared reality. That's powerful, powerful. That is terrifying for me. <laughs> well, considering terrifying, July 4th of last year was terrifying for you. Can you tell us what happened and how this information warfare contributed to this coming real close to you? Yeah, so, so one of the things that people say, oh, I'm just being mean on social media. I'm not that way in real life. One of the problems with technologically mediated interactions is that it, uh, well, at least in this case, we're being synchronous. So we can, and we're on screen. So we can kind of see one another's body language. We, we can't make eye contact quite the same way we would if we were together face to face, but we can get close. Um, in social media, we get into asynchronous communication. So it's very easy to forget there's a person on the other end of it. And because we're not getting immediate feedback, we, we can become much less kind. We say things that we wouldn't say if we were face to face and, and then we react. And so there's this, this action reaction that is just ratcheting everything up. So that's part of what's going on. But many people think, oh, it's just out there on the internet. It's not real. So this summer we had, I, I live in Gettysburg for your listeners who, who don't know um, where I'm coming from. In Gettysburg on 4th of July, a message circulated on social media in the weeks prior that said Antifa was gonna come burn flags in Gettysburg and tear down all the monuments on the battlefield that were for the Confederacy. And then on the 4th of July weekend, we had a thousand people show up with AK-47s. And they lined up on the road where I walk my dog. And they pointed their guns at friends of mine who were talking about the monuments from a historical perspective. They weren't trying to take the monuments down. They were trying to add more information. Well, let's, let's show the video of the person who was responsible, and then we'll show a brief clip, a clip of what actually did occur. Okay, great, thank you. My name is Adam Ruhuba, and I am behind the Left Behind USA Twitter account that was responsible for dragging a bunch of white nationalists out to Gettysburg for no reason. I've done some trolling around some um, some of the more crazy gun nuts. Um, I had an, a page called Trayvon's Amendment, where I proposed an amendment to the Constitution that would just rile up gun owners, and they proliferated themselves, and that's kind of what happened here, is I made something that I knew would get under some people's skin, and I let them amplify the message for me, and that's kind of how it always works. The idea came from um, something that I'd done about three years ago, um, very, very similar protest idea where um, the aim was to draw um, a bunch of absurd people to a place for something that was never gonna happen, um, to make them look absurd. And I figured that since politics have progressed to where we are in America now, it'd be way easier to do so, and um, point proven, I guess. 
the extreme thing is people showing up with guns and Confederate flags to a protest when even if the protests were legitimate, it was protected by the First Amendment and a bunch of militias showing up with guns is just absurd. So I'd say that those are the people who are putting people in danger. If now, 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 Tammy, that's your neighborhood. That's my neighborhood. <laughs> that's my neighborhood. How did you feel? What were you um, <laughs> So I, I always try to come at this very carefully because, right, this isn't, to me, this is not a question of being about, I, and, and this is another podcast I, that I'll recommend at the end. Um, this is not about the Second Amendment, and it's not about the First Amendment. This is about a community that people bring their young children to. I, that, that street where they were lined, families get out of their car with five-year-olds who are dancing around and, and they're, they're here to learn. This is a community that thrives on tourism. And so as a parent, of a child who likes to go run down that road by herself with her friends. We, we left the, the Gettysburg proper and we went and spent the day at my parents' house at their swimming pool to make sure that we were safe because all, all it takes in a situation where there's that many firearms is for one person to inadvertently shoot it. And then everybody gets disoriented and then it's not safe for anybody, not the gun owners, not the people who are there as, as guests of the, of the National Military Park. And, and so as, as a resident, I, I found it really troubling. Mm. What I find even more troubling is the clown that we just watched in the video, yeah. who's busy saying that if, if, if something had happened that day, he would bear no responsibility because he, just as we've been hearing that, that President Trump incited the rioters to go storm the Capitol, that individual incited the people to come to my town with their guns. Wow. He absolutely bears responsibility. And I don't care whether he's on the left or the right. Right. How and so, so we're getting in. So, so, so let's go to the next piece of this story. Yeah. Um, Let's, let's show the video first. Show the video, and then I'll talk a little bit about, about yeah. the man in the video. It's still July July 4th. It, it's that the day we're talking about. Yeah. And now, now we're going to see some actual footage from what occurred that day. a flag that says something about why they were here. And the reason that they were here fighting was to maintain slavery. For a lot of the leaders of the Confederacy, black lives did not matter. This is, as I said, it's about telling the whole story. Robert E. Lee, I'm sure he had many great qualities. In many ways, he's a great leader. He made some mistakes like any leader. So then why are you standing here protesting? Because this statue tells only one part of the story. So it sanctifies a man and raises him in many ways, literally above everybody else, when he was just as broken and messed up as the rest of us, right? So I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I think it's important that truth matters, that we tell about people's sin as well as about what they did right. These monuments, I don't think they should come down. I think they should tell the whole story. This debate about the Confederacy, the Confederate flag, Confederate monuments is not explicitly about who God is and who Jesus Christ is, right? It's not the gospel. But, so you think this one little sign could destroy that? It's pretty clear. I think if you take the Bible as a whole, especially the Old Testament, that God cares a lot about justice and gets angry at injustice. And I think this is part of the whole story. So that when people leave here, they understand the reality that the Confederacy, and this is probably where a lot of you are not gonna be happy, the, the organizing principle for the Confederate government, the reason there was a battle here was because of slaves. It was not. No. Was no. no. Yes, it was. No. Money. What money? And the money generated by black men and women. Tammy, 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 Tammy. Wow. 
Wow. <laughs> you didn't even see the bad, the, the scary stuff that the gentleman in the plaid shirt who was standing to Scott Hancock's uh, side filming with his camera is a friend of mine. And we had dinner either that night or the next day. I can't remember exactly. Um, and, and what he told me was that um, the police came and sort of kept that one to that, that interaction to a minimum, but at, at a late, at another monument further down the road, um, they were down there with their sign and people came out, encircled them, got down on a knee and sighted their weapons on them. They said, okay, maybe this is a little more than we signed up for. They yeah. started to try and leave. They were surrounded. The road had been blocked off so the police couldn't get to them. Um, fortunately, because they were residents of Gettysburg, this gentleman, Scott, is a, is a professor at Gettysburg College, professor of history. And my friend, Gavin, is um, uh, also works at the college. And they knew where the law enforcement was staging. So when they got followed by people who were, threat who were physically threatening them, um, they went and hung out where the police were staging until the threat disappeared. And then they, I think they went out to lunch or something. But <laughs> the point being, what we heard in that video, we only just heard a little bit of it, is what we call dueling narratives. Scott was talking about the Robert facts, historical facts about Robert E. Lee and his and, and the fact that the, the the war was fought over slavery. And over here we had the competing narrative. The yep. war was fought over money. Yep. Now, if you dig into the facts, it's clear that yes, it was fought over money. It was fought over the loss of money and the loss of wealth on the backs of slavery. Absolutely. And so we so one of the things we hear around here in Gettysburg frequently is, you know, the North won the war, but the South won the peace. Mm. Let's let's hold on to that one second. The North won the war, but the South won the peace. Shannon, your thoughts. What's what's happening out there? Folks are just agreeing in the chat room, um, loving the information about cybersecurity. Um, one of our, our viewers is saying, in his humble opinion, cybersecurity is fundamentally about risk management and economics, knowing where your greatest risks are and how to uh, bring finite resources to bear in um, remediating uh, and remediating those risks. Um, people are saying this is so powerful. They love the link. So we went ahead and put the link in the chat room for those who want to view more. Um, let me ask you this, Tony. What do you tell your students in regards to social media, the power of their postings, what they read and what they take in and absorb? Like, how do you, how do you guide them? So, so this comes down back to the class that, that is my big project right now, in, inventing a curriculum to, to educate my students, to educate myself on when we are the target. Because what we saw right there was that we are the target and there's two things vying to, there's two, two weapons vying to win us and win space in our head. One target one is saying there's more to this story. That's, you know, that's Scott Hancock's more history movement. And the other is, no, the South was not fighting about slavery. The South is, you know, those are two dueling narratives. And so they're competing for our attention. You, you probably have heard the, maybe even you've used it on the show before, this concept of the attention economy. Ooh, say more, say more. So this idea behind the attention economy is how, how much attention do you have to give to, to throughout the day? You have 24 hours and then probably not because if you're like me, you need at least a few hours of sleep. So maybe you have 16 to 18 hours of attention that you can give. And there is this constant competition for it. And so these devices, right? They are designed around the brain science to grab your attention. And the people who build the, the material that's in there mm -hmm. understand how to grab your attention. So as I started thinking through this class, I structured the first whole section we've done has been about we, the human being, and how we interact with information. And so we have talked about brain science. We've talked about emotions. We've talked about personality. 
we have been talking about some cognitive biases, cognitive dissonance. And so uh, we, what we saw in there is, so much of how we perceive information is all related to survival. Our brains were programmed to learn so we could survive when confronted with a bear or a saber-toothed tiger or a dinosaur or whatever. Uh, we could survive when confronted with fruits and berries and things that we could eat to survive, that sort of thing. And what happens when we encounter deeply, so, so, so we learn to survive, we have these deeply held beliefs that tie into survival. Now, in reality today, many of our deeply held beliefs have nothing to do with our ability to survive and procreate the species. But our brains don't differentiate between my deeply held belief in why the, the Civil War was fought or who invented aviation. But our brains don't differentiate between that and how do I get past this saber-toothed tiger. So when presented with information that conflicts with these deeply held beliefs, it's a threat. Yes. And we respond as if it's a threat. And so our fight, flight, freeze instincts kick in. And so we've been sort of teasing these threads apart in my class to begin to understand what it is we need to do to become open-minded. That's good, that's good, that's good. Shan, thank you. Tammy, let's stay with the conversation. Okay. You talked about targeting and perhaps even signaling. Mm -hmm. Did those two factors, along with what we're talking about with regard to informational warfare, they contributed to January 6th, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I think I said, I've said this to you. I've said this to my students. I've said this to my friends. We just watched what happened here in my hometown on the 4th of July weekend. So I understood and knew not only what was possible, what was probable, Right. This I, it wasn't just that I understood that you could manipulate social media to achieve an effect in the physical world of people with guns. I, I mean, I, I knew that it could happen. I then saw it happen. And there I was on January 6th sitting in the doc. Uh, we were at the doctor's office. My daughter was in getting a, a something done. And uh, my mom calls me up and she's like, you got to turn on the TV. And I, I said, well, actually, before that, I started getting a zillion text messages from a friend of mine who lives on Capitol Hill. Then my mom called and I'm like, I can't turn on the TV. I'm, I'm, I'm at the doctor's office. And she goes, well, then turn on your phone and find, find the news. Well, let's, let's, let's do this. If you would have turned on the TV, this is what you would have seen. Let's show the video. Yeah, so I turned on my phone and I saw this kind of stuff. Yeah. After this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. Senators shown this cinematic retelling of the events of January the 6th, presented as evidence those seeking to convict Trump using his words. We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And those of his supporters, together with images of the day. <laughs> Their case is that Trump issued a direct call to the mob to attack the Capitol, an incitement to insurrection for which he must pay. Now, the, the call came before then, though, right? So, so I, my mom called me about the time that the fence started being broken down. And so when I got, got my phone up and running and could see, I, I started to see those kinds of images. And, and I experienced what we call cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when we have two deeply held beliefs. One is, I know that, I absolutely believe that, that the, the capital is a place, Americans love our country, we're not gonna attack our government, right? That's one, one held belief. And then the other is, I absolutely believe what my eyes are showing me and because of what happened this summer in Gettysburg, I know that this, this is really happening. And 
and and my head's exploding, right? I mean, that's that's what happened for so many of us. And and so this is this phenomenon of cognitive dissonance as humans, and and this is again another concept we've been talking about in my class, is as humans we can't. It, this kind of psychological conflict is physically painful for us, and so we rationalize away. We rationalize away all of the the competing, conflicting stuff so that we can can receive calm, right? Yes. And and so this is is what, so so we do one, there's a couple of different things that our brains have programmed us to do. One is we we go, no, no, I don't believe that information or we rationalize it away so that we can bring it into our, our frame of reference. And so cognitive dissonance is really just the most extreme form of bias. It's when our biases are so strong that we can't hear something new. And then there's one other piece that's going on. And this comes back to the whole social media where mm-hmm. we're starting to get very cruel to one another, right? We're not starting. We've been. I definitely want to get back to that. The, the Trump and the Twitter and the shutdown and First Amendment. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back. Okay. So the one of the biggest contributors to absorbing misinformation to being a viable target for survival based attention Ooh. has to do with this in group out group mentality yes yes in group out group mentality um and and in fact we we train our soldiers in the military using in-group, out-group mentality on purpose. And we do it because the way you can get somebody's, turn off someone's moral compass, you, in order to get a group of people to go kill other people, you have to turn off the moral compass for the vast majority of them. And so in-group, out-group is used to turn off the moral compass so that you can demonize and dehumanize anybody who's in your out-group. Now, once you do that, nothing that those, peop- those people have to say has any value to us. And nothing that those people have to say has any value for problem solving. And so let's let's bring in another cognitive dissonance concept that I've been talking with my students about. I'm teaching a leadership course this semester also. And we talk about all the things we value in leaders. Leaders have the ability to sit down and open their ears and listen. Leaders have the ability to find common ground and compromise and find solutions, right? We know leadership when we encounter it. And we respond to it, we love it. And then we go and we cast our ballots for people who are like, my way or the highway. Don't cooperate with those people. And the reason is because they're those people. We've stopped seeing them as people. They are dehumanized. And so therefore we're not interested in collaborating with them. So, um, so, so there's our cognitive dissonance concept, right? We know what leadership is, but we don't actually choose it when we go and cast our ballot much of the time. And we get angry when the people who we cast our ballot for exhibit it by collaborating and cooperating with those people. This plays out on so many levels, so many, not just military, I mean, even in organizations, diversity, equity, inclusion, in-group, out-group, and people vying to be in the in-group because the out-group is not seeing their, their career ascend. This is, this is But it ties to why we don't have anybody on the bench, right? We don't have anybody on the bench ready to move up into senior leadership. And, and, it's, and so this is what we were talking about. This is my class yesterday. As leaders, we have to be constantly expanding our in-group. And, and as humans, it is natural to gravitate to a small group. I'm as bad about this as anybody. There are people that I connect, you and I, right? You and I have stayed very close in touch. There's other people who were in our group who I'm less, who, who I check in with periodically. Some I don't check in with at all. 
there's some of us just really click. We have these intellectual soulmates that we encounter. We have people who we would follow them to anywhere and back. They would follow us anywhere and back. And, and that's natural, right? Humans are relational people. We're relational creatures. We're relational beings. Well, let's, let's bring in back one of the most relational people that I know, Shannon, what's happening out there? so much i know we're we're so close to the end and there's so much information here in the chat room and there's um shout out to sammy sammy says colleague of both of you hey guys here there's an exhibit support to you both very timely topic um question for tammy um an ai enthusiast myself and working in healthcare we're seeing a lot of targeted malware attacks recently in hospitals and healthcare systems it hits two dimensions that you mentioned tech and information how can we leverage the third dimension, intelligence, AI, um, to predict the threats and avoid malware attacks strategically? So I'm working on trying to build that right now. Is my only answer. I have it. We were on. We were online last night with my team trying to. Um, we understand the what I call the backside of the all the wiring underneath. What we're trying to figure out is what does the top look like because. You know, if, if somebody opened up my toaster and showed it to me, I would not see the value in it. But you hand it to me and tell me stick bread in it and warm it up. And now I have toast for breakfast. You know, that we're working on the how do I make it clear that I stick to bread in the toaster and press the button and now I have toast. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard question. And we're working on that. But the technology exists. Um, the trick is how do you present it so that humans can consume, right? Um, what we're looking at is how can you simultaneously game out hundreds of courses of action in a short period of time so that you can figure out what's executable and, and determine what you can do. And that's, that's how you would begin to take on the problem you're describing related to healthcare and, and defensive networks and everything else. Awesome. Uh, we, have, we have time for more, another question, Dr. James, or you wanna? Okay, let's see. We have um, folks are highly recommending viewing Netflix, The Social Dilemma, which is talking a lot about what we're covering here. Um, you, when you mentioned cognitive dissonance, it struck a chord um, as can really be dangerous for people as they end up stra um, strategizing, becoming very angry with others as a part of their brain may believe something that was potentially taught behavior. Um, also just saying, you know, Alcoholics and addicts use cognitive dissonance at all the time. Um, our minds we all do. <laughs> yeah, we all do, right? And and um, we have a comment here saying that January 6th was a textbook case study in information warfare. The rioters used cell phones to record and celebrate their actions. And now the very same people being prosecuted with their evidence of uploading to social media. Just a very interesting thing. Wow. Dr. James, it makes me think like it's like, psychological warfare and now they have a hub to just yeah. dump it mm -hmm. and it's so powerful yeah it is it is Shannon, thank you tam i know time is getting away i did want to get your your thoughts on was president trump's first amendment rights violated when he twitter shut him down and you and i talked a little bit about bridgerton and how that speaks to a whole different level of, of a different reality. Right. So, so part of what's going on is online radicalization. QAnon is part of that. Um, tr Trump, uh, of all the things I can say about Trump, he is one of the most gifted information warriors I have ever observed in the sphere. I, I mean, he is extraordinarily talented at getting inside people's heads and creating behavior that he wants to see. And uh, to, to, which we saw on the 6th of January, right? Um, and even on the 6th of January, we saw the whole information warfare piece come out because it wasn't hours after they had cleared it before it was, oh, those were really Antifa people pretending to be uh, Trump supporters. And, and so so already the, the narrative trying to be wrenched out, we're seeing it in Texas right now. Texas, the, the grid is down, the grid is down because it is a fossil fuels based there's a whole me melee down there, right? But the narrative that's coming out from the fossil fuel industry is that this is because of the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal doesn't even exist. It's, it's, it was like an idea that didn't even pass. 
Right. And yet it's, and the, the, but the narratives are out there fighting and fighting and fighting. So coming back to how do we begin to take on systemic marginalization? How do we begin to take on radicalism? There's a couple different things that are going on that are really interesting. One is, is Scott Hancock and this more history movement. Um, I think I told you the other day, 20 years in the Air Force, spent all kinds of time studying aviation history. My daughter had some assignment, I don't know whether it was social studies or English, the Wright brothers, Orbel and Wilbur Wright had a sister. I had no idea. No. I found this out like two weeks ago doing my seventh grade daughter's homework with her. I was, I was stunned. And she had all this great information on female aviators. I'd never heard of any of them. It was amazing. Um, so that's one piece, this more history movement. Another piece is 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 beginning there if you've uh there's something called america in color it's on the smithsonian channel i think you can also get it on amazon prime i was watching that and and there was some things i learned on it that i had never heard like for example that was the first time i saw black wall street uh-huh. that was the first time i heard about the tulsa race massacres and i learned about it while watching live footage and, and i sat there going how have i never heard of this or seen this and then in june we heard about Juneteenth. And, and then I was like, oh, that must be what I had seen on, on American Color. Um, but there's an article in the New York Times this weekend uh, by an author who was talking about the fact that we're looking at racism through the wrong lens. And, and she, was a, she was a person of color. She's an um, African-American professor, I think Princeton, but I don't remember for sure. Um, she was talking about the fact that prior to the civil rights movement, our nation believed in taxing, taxing heavily, spending on infrastructure, spending on create job creation and spending on a social safety net. And then when the public began to include those people for whoever these people were. We're showing the New York Times article right now. Yes. Yeah, when, when, when they expanded this vision and segregation was no longer gonna be permitted, we decided to take public funding away. And so the example she gives in the, in the newspaper article is um, down in the South hot, people who don't have a lot of money would go to the public pool. Well, once the pool became integrated, Parks and Rec decided, no, we're not gonna fund the pool. They closed the pool. So now nobody had the pool. Not white people, not black people, nobody. And from that, pers- from that point on, we started taking away money because there was this belief somehow that it's a zero sum game. Yeah. And, and what, why I bring this to this uh, American color up, it, there was a, a news segment where they had the Arkansas governor talking and I had to rewind it and watch it three times because my, my head just was kind of exploding. And the governor, so, so after Brown v. Board of Education, right? Mm-hmm. The military comes down, enforces integration of the schools. The governor, a year later, closed all the schools in the state of Arkansas. Yep. Because by God, if we were going to have black kids going to school with white kids, nobody was going to go to school. Yeah. That just hurts everybody. And so this, yeah. this article by Heather McGee, she she's taking on this this you know we got to look at this a rising tide lifts all boats it's not that we've taken money away from white people and given it to to black people or taken it away from men and given it to women we've taken it away from everybody so that this small little group at the top has it all so this is two pieces of it but there's another piece to radicalism narratives right and that is this well Black people didn't have power in the past because women didn't have power in the past because Asian people didn't have power in the past because. So enter Shonda Rhimes (laughs) and Bridgerton. (laughs) I love this because what she's done, because our brains, the brains are fascinating things. Even if something is not real, we can believe it is true right? As we know from Q&I, right? So she's saying, let's change the narratives of the past, despite the fact that facts would, would argue that those narratives are untrue. And so here's Bridgerton. We've got a queen who is Black, 
we've got the most prominent bachelor in the ton is black. We've got women who are black and white and Asian. Now, now the one thing about Bridgerton I would say is that it's all about women needing men to rescue them and, and marry them and whatever. So the, the, the man female, the man woman narrative, not so great in here, but definitely it's beginning to say what if power had been distributed in the hands of not just one type of person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so all of these things together will begin to change what we can see as possible. And these are ways to counter these radicalizing narratives that are, are coming out online. And, and for the future of our country, that's, that's absolutely critical to yeah. be able to, to get past these radicalizing narratives. We're, we're, um, getting, we're getting to the uh, part of the show where we call it the mini M-I-N-I keynote. Okay. I'm a speaker, running my mouth all the time. I like to get our guests to give us 30 seconds or so on a call to action based on what we've been talking about, what we should be doing, considering how we can get better, but just coming from the head, coming from the heart, just look right at the camera. Okay. Give, us, give us your mini keynote. So the thing I've been really foot stomping with my students, and, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, is we need to expand our in-group. We need to expand our in-group. We need to learn to recognize when information is deliberately crafted in a way to target our survival instincts. So one of the things that we as humans can do, one, there's, there's emotional state, 95% of the way we encode information has an emotional component. And the more visceral the emotional reaction, the more you remember it, the easier you can retrieve it, and the more detailed the memory is. So whether it is a extraordinarily positive memory, like the first time someone told you they loved you, I can remember that in vivid detail. I can also remember a, 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 mem a, a time when I was absolutely, utterly terrified because the tour bus had left me behind on a deserted road <laughs> in Mexico at 1030 at night. And I was, I can remember the, what people on the bus looked like who I've never met before or since. And so messages are being crafted to trigger that because we understand brain science. We understand how to grab your attention and we understand which emotions open your mind and which emotions close your mind. And so for you, for me, for our listeners, pay attention to what's happening inside you, here, here, when you encounter information. Recognize, try to recognize when you're being target, when you're a target, and then ask yourself, why am I a target? Mm. What is it they're trying to get from me? Because that, that curiosity, getting back into a relaxed state. You know, when, when, when information triggers our anger or our fear, we are not in a relaxed state where we can actually cognitively process. We're in a reactionary state where our amygdala kicks in and says, run or fight. And so what, you, what we need to be working on is how do we keep our mind open? How do we get back to an emotional state that allows us to be curious? Dr. Tammy, Dr. Tammy, drop the mic. Wow. <laughs> wow. Shannon, we're, we're landing the plane. What do you think? What do you think? Amazing. Amazing. So much information. I, I gained so much inf information, things I didn't realize, things I didn't know, thought process. I mean, thought process, the chat room's blowing up. Excellent program. Thank you for sharing. Um, just awesome. No, people aren't ready for the conversation to end. They're like, no, don't go. <laughs> well, th think about the two word call to action. Pay attention. Pay attention. 
Yeah. Wow. And expand your in-group. <laughs> Grow yes. your in-group. That be is an advocate for others to expand that group. We really appreciate you hanging in, hanging in with us, joining us today. I said informational and transformational. Dr. Schwartz dropped some gems on us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You have just been gym-packed. See you later. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.